Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 486 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how you can succeed as an author or writer. This week, I have a special event just for you. It's free and it is a must if you're interested in writing for children, whether that's younger readers like picture books or chapter books, and also then middle grade books and books for young adults. Now, as you can imagine, each age group has very specific requirements when it comes to things like topics that you can write about or the characters you create. Or the kind of language you can use is very specific for each market. So you need to ensure that you get it right if you want to be published. Now, in some books, you can swear, for example, and in others, you can't. In some books, it's okay to explore sexuality. In other books, not at all. In some books, you should have adults in them. In others, not so much. In fact, it's better for you to not to have adults in them. But how can you navigate what the expectations are for each type of book and each age group? Well, there are obviously lots of questions to answer, and I know that because many of you email them to me. So I figured if one person has that question, chances are many of you may have that question as well. So that's why I've organized an awesome free event for you. It's called Writing for Children of All Ages, and we're going to have fantastic hosts. We're going to have Suzanne O'Sullivan on it, who has been an editor and publisher for 17 years, specializing in books for children and young adults. She has worked in-house at Hachette, Walker Books, Scholastic. Oh, she's just got an incredible CV. As a publisher, her credits include Jessica Townsend's Nevermore series, Rules of Summer and Cicada by Sean Tan, Alison Tate's Mapmaker Chronicles and the Squidge Dibley series and so many others. Now, what an opportunity for you to be able to ask questions to Suzanne at this event. In addition to Suzanne, we also have our very own Pamela Freeman, who also writes under the name of Pamela Hart, and she has written for all ages picture books, chapter books, middle grade, everything. And she's written these books in fiction and nonfiction as well. And she's won awards for them. So she can give you the perspective of an author. So I'm so excited to bring this special Zoom event to you on 16th June at 7.30 Sydney time or Australian Eastern Standard Time, so 16th of June. And you can join from anywhere. So at that time, you can get the kids sorted, hopefully, if you have kids, or grab yourself a glass of wine and join us for an hour where you'll learn about how to write for children of all ages and get your questions answered. And this is a free event. So also, I am organizing something really special for any of you guys who are attending. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to be huge. And I mean huge. You'll really kick yourself if you don't get this special bonus from me. So to RSVP and to find out more about the event, go to writerscenter.com.au slash RSVP. That's writerscenter.com.au slash RSVP. Now, in addition to planning this awesome event, I've been noticing that there's been a lot of discussion lately on 
something that has been getting quite a bit of coverage called bionic reading. It's a type of font that claims to make you able to read faster. (laughs) You can install it on your web browser to change the font to make it easier for you to read quickly, supposedly. Basically, what it does is it bolds certain letters in each word so that your eye only looks at the bolded bit and your brain fills in the rest of the word, which is kind of how you read anyway. You don't read every letter. Your brain recognizes the shape of the word, and this bionic reading claims to help you do that even faster. I personally found it a little bit annoying because I'm a fast reader already, but it has gained a lot of attention in the ADHD community, people on the autism spectrum, and also dyslexic readers. Some in these communities are raving about it and say that it really helps them to focus on their reading. But I've also read articles from professionals saying that slower reading is better for comprehension, particularly if you have a reading disorder or something that stops you from focusing. It's free to try out, so if you feel like you need more focus or speed when you're reading, give it a go and let me know if it works for you. I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes so you can check out more about bionic reading. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is coprolalia. Coprolalia, that's C-O-P-R-O-L-A-L-I-A. Do you know what it means? Well, it's a noun and it means the excessive and involuntary use of obscene language as a feature of a psychological condition, as in like Tourette's syndrome. It comes from the Greek copro, C-O-P-R-O, meaning dung or excrement, and lalia, which means talk or prattle. So it kind of means poo talk. (laughs) Of course, I think that's hilarious myself, but you know. (laughs) And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au forward slash book. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Lee and her book is How Words Get Good, The Story of Making a Book. I absolutely loved this book. Rebecca is a professional word improver and she talks about how a book gets from an author's brain to a finished book. She also covers a whole range of fascinating topics, including ghostwriters, typesetting, um, why certain words end up in books, footnotes, endnotes, covers everything. And she also covers some really interesting stories about the history of hyphens and end dashes and ellipses and, and so on. So let's have a chat with the absolutely fascinating Rebecca Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Thank you for having me, Valerie. I love your book so much. (laughs) How Words Get Good. I couldn't put it down. I've emailed so many people saying, you've got to read this book. Oh, my God, I think you're going to love this book. Now, for readers who haven't got a copy of the book yet, 
Tell us what it's about. <laughs> okay, so um, I was asked to write this book by someone I used to work with is the kind of really boring, prosaic answer of how the book came to be. Um, but um, I think from my point of view and based on my career, I've worked at Penguin Random House for about 20 years. Um, I've been a sort of point of connection between authors um, and then all the behind the scenes work that goes into making a book. Um, so I thought there was something in the notion of challenging the idea of the um, writing a book being a sort of lonely solo endeavour, because actually it's a huge collective team effort. Um, but uh, I wouldn't want readers to think that I know everything there is to know about publishing. So the book was really a kind of um, journey for me in finding out about what all these fantastic people did, all the indexers, all the cover designers, all the blurb writers. Um, and I think with books, we... <clears throat> we're so used to them as objects but we don't think very much about how they come to be and I think really like when it comes down to it um I hope readers will feel about this book in the same way that I do um which is that we're all a bit crazy about books um and there's <laughs> really fun interesting stories about how books come to be there are so many fun and interesting stories I think that um and and, and you listeners you just have to go and get this book because they're so interesting they're so worthwhile and a lot of them you wouldn't have heard of now what happened when somebody said to you hey are you interested in writing this book did the because you work in the publishing industry but had you thought of writing a book of this nature before what did you think I thought uh total panic um because <laughs> I was it was very very flattering to be asked but I had never considered myself uh, to be an author you know I spent my days um, I mean there's probably something quite ironic in this I spent my days uh, correcting other people's writing that's how I saw myself um, and so to put myself on the other side of that process uh, was quite a big leap uh, to take in my mind um, so I was very unsure that I would be able to to do this um, and I also I think it probably turned into a slightly different book to the one my editor originally intended. Um, I think she perhaps was looking for something more about the rules of grammar or, you know, how sentences oh. are constructed, which, you know, there's lots of fantastic books out there um, about that kind of thing. But I'm afraid my mind is much more like digging down into rabbit holes of fun stories um, and having a slightly, I hope, entertaining and humorous take uh, on books. Oh, absolutely. So there are, you can tell that you did a lot of research for this book and um, and it's absolutely fascinating. But how did you then go to the editor and say, oh, it's kind of morphed into something else? Well, um, so I... I had a, I was very lucky. I had a four month sabbatical actually during the first lockdown here in the UK. Um, so I headed off to sort of get my idea, get my head around the book and how I thought I could structure it and start doing some research and doing some writing. Uh, and I originally started out with a sort of um, A to Z uh, concept. Oh. Uh, but then I sort of changed that into a beginning with like covers and finishing with indexes. So kind of mirroring the physical properties of the book. I wrote the first draft and then my editor and I, uh, well, she looked at it and she didn't like the structure at all, um, which was a very like, it's a very challenging point for an author when you spent so much time writing something and you sort of feel like that's the only way it can exist. And she was like, no, that's not working. And that's when we came up with this three part structure that the book now follows, which is kind of more thematic um, and mm. I think works better. So I think, um, what I'm trying to say here is 
the role of the commissioning editor in publishing um, it's quite difficult to define but it's absolutely invaluable because when you're a writer and you're that close to the text um, and that's sort of emotionally invested in it it's impossible for you to put yourself in the shoes of a reader and to think is this helping the reader to understand what I want to say here um, mm. so having an editor having all these other pairs of eyes on your work is really important. So did you write it in that sabbatical, the, 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 the first draft anyway, or, or, and, did you, or, and did you not have to do any of your day job during that time? I had, I did, I had my four-month sabbatical and I, I wrote the first draft. Then we had this um, sort of backwards and forwards about the structure of the book, which took quite a few months to resolve. I mean, one, one thing I should uh, emphasise about publishing is it moves at the pace of a glacier. It's like it's very slow. <laughs> generally for lots of reasons um, yes. you have to have a lot of patience and a lot of stamina uh, to stick with it um, so we had some backwards and forwards about restructuring the book and obviously I was back at work by then so finding time to restructure mm. it was quite tricky. I did all that um, my editor then moved on to another publisher uh, so I sort of began the oh. process of um, and so she looked at the text uh, and did a sort of line by line edit with me, which was actually really, really helpful. Um, and then eventually, I mean, by this point, as an author, you're completely exhausted. Um, mm. The book went into copy editing. So the sort of bit of my day job that I'm, I work on. Um, and it was really interesting because I like to think that previously I was, you know, uh, empathetic towards my authors and the work they're having to do. But I think being an author myself now has made it even more clear to me um, that you sort of you write this book, you put it all out there. It can be quite intense um, and you just want a bit of a break. But no, then the text comes back to you from your copy editor, which <laughs> I must say, I didn't enjoy being copy edited. And that's not because my copy editor wasn't brilliant. She was fantastic. But it's like having your homework given back to you. You know, there's all these corrections you've got to consider. There's all these kind of things you have to respond to. So it was another layer and another sort of six weeks of like very intense engagement with the text. Mm. Well, I got through that. Um, and then we went to page proofs, um, which is actually lovely because then it starts to look like a book. Yes. Um, so page proofs, um, indexing. Uh, and then we did, you know, several rounds of, of corrections. Um, so in all, Valerie, I think it took two <laughs> years. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and that's not unusual. Yes, yes, um, but so, still. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> so with this book then, did you, um, uh, because you're already, you've been in the publishing industry for uh, a couple of decades, so you already have a lot of knowledge about mm. how the process works. And yet there was so much research clearly in this book, including the history of, of how certain things came about, the history of how some punctuation came about, um, research into ways other publishing houses or authors did certain things. Um, how, did, how did you approach that research at the start? How did you even know what you were going to research or did you kind of just let yourself go down 50,000 rabbit holes and then curate the best bits? I think um, I tried to start with the, the physical properties of the book. And so, for example, just doing something as basic as opening a book and looking at a page and thinking, well, why do we have footnote indicators that look like that? Why do we have running heads that look like that? what can we find out about how you put text on a page? Um, 
And there's all these fantastic stories that sort of, I mean, a lot of it obviously dovetails with the history of print, mm. um, whole chapter on printing. And I was really lucky I got to go and visit a printer here in the UK. Um, and it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and as, for example, when I started writing the, the chapter on print, I realized that basically the history of print is the history of like Europe. You know, it, it, you know it, it's so, it was such a profound social change um, that you could, and people have written entire, write entire books about the impact of mass printing um, on the whole of culture. So obviously I couldn't go that far into it. Um, mm. But there were all these stories that once you start unpicking them, you know, when did we start having page numbers in books? Um, when did we start having books that looked like books? You know, because originally mm. um, uh, uh, you would have text printed on a scroll. Yes. Um, but at some point that became a, a book. Um, and so in some ways, I, I guess it's quite self-indulgent in that I let myself just go and find all these sort of fun stories. But I was also lucky because um, I work with lots of fantastically talented people. And so I could go and have uh, interviews with them um, about what they were doing um, in mm. their pub- the publishing process. So, for example, there's a whole chapter in the book about blurbs. So the, you know, the text that's on the back cover of a book, um, which, you know, the whole idea of it is to persuade people to buy the book. And I work with a fantastically brilliant uh, copywriter. Um, and it was just so interesting talking to her because her life is spent crafting these sort of 200 words. Um, mm. So they're very, very concise. Every word has to be meaningful. There's no room for any sort of redundancy. And so it's a real, like, you know craft uh, that she's honed over years of experience um and so as soon as I started thinking about these stories it became clear that there was so much to kind of unpack mm. and to understand why books are you know published in the way that they are so the great thing about being a in the industry you can talk to somebody like somebody who writes blurbs but there are so many stories that are historical and I'd love to just unpack some of those to find out where you found out the stories. So yeah. let's take the one about, you know, we used to write on scrolls, which is vertical, mm-hmm. um, and you write in the book that at some point it became horizontal and at some point then someone got the bright idea of stitching the pages together so that it you could write on both sides of the page, so to speak, and you could yeah. carry it around in kind of like a book, um, in book form. So, and I may not have got all of that cor- right, so please do correct me. <laughs> so where do you, did you find out all of that, for example, as one story? Okay, so I started, like any sensible person would, on the internet. Uh, on Wikipedia. <laughs> like if you just look at like you know uh, if you put in publishing or printing or book uh, you know I, I began there um, there is a bibliography in How Words Get Good which uh, so that will tell readers uh, where I then went away and found you know I, sp- I spent like the first three weeks of my sabbatical just ordering books uh, online to, to for me to read um, so it was fantastic because um, I very quickly discovered uh some fantastic resources uh, that I could then uh, take take away and then do further research on. And it's really like, it's amazing. Like, so for example, there's an academic out there who has written an entire book about ellipses, you know, the dot, dot, dot that I talk about in the book. So I I touch on it fairly briefly, um, but but she has written, you know, uh, an entire book and based her sort of academic career on these three little dots and, and what they mean. Um, so there are people out there who really, you know, 
drill down into these tiny, tiny little points of uh, of interest. Um, so I guess I had more of a magpie approach in that I wanted to cover a fair amount of ground. Um, I couldn't write an entire book just about ellipses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> amazing how that would be. Um, and I'm very glad to <laughs> done so because, you know, it's out there and it's fantastic. And, um, so it was a case of like marshalling all of these kind of um, sources, um, uh, doing lots of reading, doing lots of research, uh, and then pulling together the most interesting stories that I could find. One of the other stories you tell is, well, there's a chapter on ghostwriting and yeah. you you tell this story about um, syndicates and how um, Edred, Edward Strathmire, I think I've got the name right, who started the Rover Boys but was also responsible for the Bobsy Twins and um, what with some of the others? Well, uh, so then you go, you move on to things like Nancy Drew. Um, yes. That kind of like, yeah. The Hardy Boys yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So... And then his publisher created this syndicate. Can you just tell listeners the concept of a syndicate and how it worked? Yeah, I guess so. This is kind of like, it's probably in the 1930s in in the States. And it was this idea that he'd come up with this, uh, the concept, uh, like the Bobsy Twins. Um, But he basically employed a stable of um, sort of hack writers to churn out the books. And it was done to a really strict formula, you know, so in terms of um, the number of words, um, the length of the first chapter, um, the language that could be used. Um, and it's just a really interesting way of um, thinking about, like, uh, when I was a child, you know, I used to love reading uh, Edith Blyton books, you know, um, and we look back on them now and think, well, you know, they're not particularly great examples of storytelling, but they are because they're very familiar, comforting worlds and that's because they follow the same formula mm. and the same and I think when we're children in particular and you're learning to read um reading can be difficult um and so finding a way to read where you sort of know where the structure of the story is going to go is is quite helpful um and that's why you know we still return to that when we're older as well so the other person I talk about is um Ian Fleming, um, yeah. the James Bond books, where there's a very clear um, structure that happens in every single one of the books. Um, and we do like that. You know, there's this kind of like it's easy to be kind of, uh, you know, to think, well, this is not great writing because it just follows the same structure every time. But it's actually re- re- really reassuring for readers. They're little mm-hmm. foothold handholds that you can pull yourself through the text Mm. And you also cover some elements of punctuation. And mm-hmm. I was reading um, what you were talking about, the in dashes and the M dashes and the spaces. And I'm yeah. like, oh, that's exactly <laughs> what I think. But, but, <laughs> but let's talk about the asterisk. Yeah. Um, now, I did not know the history of the asterisk until I read it in your book. Can you tell listeners about how the asterisk came about? But also, how did you find out that story? (laughs) Yeah, so um, there was some amazing research done um, in Europe. um, So paleoarchaeologists, and they were um, looking at cave paintings and cave markings around the whole of Europe. And they discovered um, that there were, I think, 32 signs and symbols that appeared over about uh, 30,000 years um, and across the whole of Europe. And one of those symbols that kept popping up was the asterisk, 
this little star. Um, and I love to think like, you know, so this little star, it illuminates things that are important. So basically, since humans have been able to uh, write or communicate by writing on walls, they have wanted to find a way to emphasize um, where something is really, really important. And the little star was the symbol that they they chose, which is just so lovely, because if you think about it, it's like, you know, you obviously got stars up in the sky uh, and they thought, well, the, the way to highlight this story is to draw a little star next to it. And that is the story of the asterisk. It's just like mm. it is just amazing. It's this idea of it like shining a little extra light on something that the writer thinks is important. Mm-mm. Now, this book flows so well and it's funny and it's fascinating. Why had you not thought of being an author before? <laughs> I don't <laughs> um, I, I think maybe I'm you know, I'm I work with authors all the time. Um mm-hmm. and I think may I, I think I just never really saw myself in that role. I felt like I was, you know, my job was to kind of sweep up behind them and kind of work with them on refining what they were doing. And I'd never really considered uh, that I, I could be an author. Um, I have to say, once I started writing, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I surprised myself with how much I, enjoy, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so I hope I'll get the opportunity to do some more. Um, but it was a big leap of faith for me, like, you know, to, after 20 years uh, to suddenly change the way I thought of myself and my relationship with words um but it's been amazing and and partly because uh I can then uh really understand how my authors feel when I'm Mm. you know presenting them with another copy edited uh text or loads more queries um so yeah it's been it's been amazing so have you thought of oh if I wrote another book it was it's going to be about (laughs) x (laughs) Okay, so uh, my uh, my poor long-suffering partner, he's also a writer, but I tend to wake up in the mornings and say, well, I could write a history of offshore wind farms or a book about toads. <laughs> this is honestly how my brain works, Valerie. And he looks at me sadly and says, why don't you just stick to what you know, see how this book does, and then perhaps think of some more ideas in the same kind of space, which is, of course, correct. I really must try and confine myself. But I am like... I love doing the research and yes. I, I hope that shows in the book. You know, it that absolutely does. Diving down rabbit holes because um, I think it's Richard Feynman, the physicist, who said, and I completely agree with this, everything is interesting once you go into it just a little bit. So mm. it doesn't matter what it is in the world, everything. So, you, you know, as an example from the book, just taking the ellipses, those three little dots, mm. why they came to be, how they came to be, how we use them. Um, you know, there's lots of stories about just three little dots on a page and the whole of books and words have all those stories it, once you start drilling down. But the thing that uh, it, a lot of other people love research and love the process of it, but when they often put too much of their research in the book, but you've managed to just distill the exact amount that is going to be utterly fascinating, but still feel whole for the reader. Um, But let's go back to my original question, which was, have you thought about what book you're going to write next? (laughs) Well, at the moment, Valerie, I'm just trying to enjoy this book as well. Fair enough. I I think... um, it, it'd be quite easy to get onto the whole like, oh, what, should, what do I do next? And 
and, and in some ways that's quite a daunting question for me because I was really like I said I was really lucky that someone came to me with the idea for this book and the title and you know um so it, you know it wasn't presented to me as a fully formed idea but it was like you know the editor felt that there was a market for the book and that's a really like privileged position to be in as a writer because often you know usually for writers they come up with an idea and then they have to write a proposal and go and find a publisher so I I was able to do it in a slightly backwards version um so I do have some ideas but I, I yeah I'm maybe we'll think about it in the autumn once uh, this is all calmed down um and and <laughs> try and confine myself to something within uh, <laughs> the sphere that I know quite a lot about rather than just going off on a random uh, segue into postcodes or pylons but you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> postcodes or pylons so let's go back to when you were making your career choices and you obviously mm. th- didn't think oh I'm going to become an author you had you always wanted to get into the publishing industry or how did how did you get into the publishing industry um so yeah I was I was a very bookish child it won't surprise you to learn I remember like one of my earliest memories is actually um falling downstairs uh because I was reading a Peter Rabbit book as I walked which used to drive my parents insane like I would be I would I would literally make myself car sick by reading in the car um which was my devotion to reading um so I I always uh you know love books and I love reading um but I went to university and did English and history um and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I hadn't really thought about publishing as a career at that point. And I did a couple of years of like um, sales, uh, working on a student magazine. And while I was working on the magazine, I actually got much more interested in how it was put together. So the whole like production process and mm. um, and that taught me a lot. So I decided to then go and do um, a six month publishing course um, here in the UK, um, which just covered um, everything. I mean, it had quite a heavy emphasis on print, actually. Um, so I did I did that and I got some work experience as part of that. Um, and I was really lucky. So um, my CV ended up at Penguin and they recruited me initially as an assistant temporary production controller uh, for a three month job. So it was a pretty, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like low level entry position. Um, but it was Penguin. Um, mm. And, you know, once I was there, I was able to then I was in production for a couple of years uh, and then I moved to editorial. So I was really, really lucky. Um, and just that whole like the first books I worked on at Penguin were the Penguin Classics. Mm. Um, so like just this amazing list, like, you know, it's the absolute bedrock uh, of Penguin as a publisher. Um, all these incredible books um, that have some of them been in print for you know many, many years. And, and uh, we were doing new editions of uh, old classics all the time. Um, so I learned so much um, from from doing that list as well. Mm. Let's come back to the actual writing and putting together creation of this book um we've talked about the fact that there's a lot of research um but I'd like to know how you managed that research so obviously you read a billion books a billion journals articles whatever went to libraries but you have to collate it somehow and collate it in a way that um is uh robust and accurate and and you of all people a clear lover of footnotes would would obviously want it to be robust and 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 accurate and attributable to things. Yeah. So how did you do that? What system did you have? You know, can you describe it's a really it? Really good question. Yeah. yeah. So I had um I had an A five hardback book uh, notebook first of all, um, and so the very beginning it was just my thoughts 
um, about each topic. So uh, I had a page on, say, indexing. Um, so I put down the you know, history of the index, uh, go and talk to Richard, uh, who I work with, who's uh, uh, obsessed with indexes, um, <laughs> and just kind of fragments uh, of my thoughts about it. Then I would go away and actually start doing the research. And obviously, a lot of, as I've said, a lot of that was done online. Um, and it was a case of just being really thorough about always cutting and pasting the um, web link. Into but where, what, did, what document did you, what did you use, an app? Did you just use Word? What did you? Just Word, yeah. Just, just Word. Word, okay. Now, if I was doing it uh, again, uh, mm-hmm. I might find a more efficient uh, way of doing it um, because I'm sure there are things out there actually that probably would make this a lot easier. Um, but yeah, that's the, the, my, the level of my technological skill at that time. Um, <laughs> but it was just a case of being like rigorous um, and, and it, it, you know, being able to track back sources is, is obviously really important and being able to yes. credit them. Um, and then I was also at the same time uh, reading and compiling a bibliography. Um, so and that kind of thing, uh, I mean, I, I work on bibliographies with authors all the time, uh, many of them much more detailed and involved than my one, actually. Um, and again, but that's kind of like if you're interested in books, uh, mm. working on a bibliography uh, about books, about books is, is <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> Quite meta. <laughs> Very. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was kind of like one of the things about, you know, writing this book was... Uh, you know, it was quite strange in that, uh, you know, I'd be writing about copy editing or copy editors whilst I would also be be being copy edited myself. Yes. Um, And so it kind of threw up all these like, you know, uh, little tangles of uh, examples that I could then use in the book. Um, So it was was quite a strange experience. Based on your love of research, did a lot then end up on the cutting room floor so to speak like and how did you determine what got to stay in well I I think that's a really good question and as an author it's quite easy to be self-indulgent so to sort of think well I like this story I'm interested Mm. in this story I think this is fascinating surely everyone else will and that's where you need a good editor Um, and my when I delivered my first draft, it was, I think my contract said 80,000 words and I was at like 120,000. And I thought, well, this is brilliant. Like, you know, I've exceeded my word count. <laughs> what I learned um, is that as I was talking to one of the, uh, a structural editor um, about the process of how you edit books. And he said these three words to me and they are so true. Concision is generosity. So for your reader being concise, is this gift that you can give them? And I wish I'd listened more to my editor uh, who was cutting, cutting, cutting uh, quite a lot of what I wrote. And I was resisting it because you know, when you're the author, that's what you feel that you must do. But uh, if I did it again, I would take out even more, I think, because this idea of concision um, being the greatest gift that you can give your readers, I think is a really, really important one. Um, so I, th- I think the point I'm making is... Um, you know, listen to your editors uh, because mm. they are able to guide you um, on what you know when you just go too overboard when you've got too many stories. Um, so I, you know, I did take out some stuff. I, I'm not complete uh, megalomaniac. Um, <laughs> I probably should have taken out even more. 
You, you tell this this story. I can't remember. It was at Mark Twain or somebody who it, the the copy editor. Oh, that's right. The copy editor was told to cut a third of the book or something like that. But the author and then the copy editor did that and then sent it to the author. But the the publisher didn't forewarn the author. So of course the author was was horrified. Absolutely yeah. admitted that it was yeah. a better book. Yeah, I think yeah, and this is like. Um, you know, a big part of my job is this kind of dance uh, between uh, the publisher and the author. And you have to be tactful and you have to be careful. And <laughs> you know, my freelance copy editors are, are fantastic. And you have to be really like, um, you know, careful in how you approach things, these things with with an author, um, because it's it's hard to go to someone that spent perhaps years writing a book and say, well, actually, this is this this whole chapter doesn't need to be in, in the book it, it's redundant it's not bringing anything to the reader and I think that's like you know it's like like when you're an author um it's quite a solitary experience that's what writing generally is but publishing is this collective endeavor um mm. about getting words to be as good as they possibly can be um so it is a bit of a dance between author and publisher um and I hope that most mostly authors find that it adds value, um, that it helps, that it's able to um, help them find the best way of presenting their words. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a bit, it, it can be fraught with difficulty. It really can. So what was the hardest thing about writing this book? Um, I think the hardest thing about writing it was getting the structure nailed down. I, I found that really, really challenging. Like I love... Mm. Um, I approached each chapter, um, I, and I hope the reader feels this too, that they can sort of stand alone. You don't have to start at the beginning of the book and go all the way through to the end. If you want to just start but by reading about um, footnotes or blurbs, you can just head straight to those chapters and they sort of stand on their own. Um, so within chapters, I, did, I didn't really have a problem with structuring things, but the whole the idea of how I would bring it all together uh, into a, a sort of thematic whole was quite difficult because quite a lot of what I was writing about is quite difficult to define. Like if someone says to you, what does an editor do? Um, oh. It's actually quite difficult to explain. So the easier chapters are ones like print, where there's a you know, mechanical process um, yes. that you can follow. Um, but the chapter on authors, for example, and how people write, I found really challenging. Um, and also faintly ridiculous because this was my first book. So who am I to <laughs> to write anything but um so I tried to look at it in, in kind of like you know through this framework of um that you know essentially all stories follow the same seven plots um and there's actually there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to storytelling uh, it's just how uh, mm. we work in those uh, plots that we know that people like to read um so that those chapters were really quite hard um because you're, you're trying to describe something that's really like ethereal and and sort of mm. Whereas if you're writing about blurbs, there's an actual physical thing that you can go and look at and people you can go and talk to. Um, mm. So, it was, yeah, that was tough. And so what was the most enjoyable part of it? Or was there a particular topic that you just got so into that you thought it was, <laughs> you know, you got lost in that? Yeah, I, I think, like, um, it was so the chapters on footnotes and indexes are uh, kind of my favourites. Uh, I was very sad to have to wave goodbye to them <laughs> um, because they're they're like they're they are 
so indexing is its own little miniature world. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you don't have time to read my book, just read the index um, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it will tell you, you know, it, it's this kind of like, uh, as Sam Leaf just, uh, quote, and I quote him in the book says, it's a series of magical shortcuts. Um, so you can read an index and get a flavour of what the book is about. Um, and I just love that idea of like, you know, how much value, uh, you know, <laughs> often get overlooked. I think um, it's uh, increasingly hard to justify spending the money on them. Publishers don't want mm. to, but they're really, really important. Um, and footnotes, like, you know, I, abs- I, you know, I love footnotes. I know some people <laughs> really don't like them, um, in which case this book is probably not for you. Um, but <laughs> it's the whole idea of this sort of, uh, slight aside that you can yes. have um, and I can't remember who now someone described footnotes as having this playful and disruptive nature which I think is probably me actually uh, that's how <laughs> I operate but I love that idea is that they they sort of disrupt the text just to give you a little playful aside um, mm. they're absolutely amazing and you know I just I just think that footnotes tell you so much about a writer um, mm. and and them as a person it allows you to kind of express your personality a bit more than the main text does so I I guess those two are my favorite chapters I think that um people will also will learn a lot not only about you know fun facts and history of things but also because you cover things like hyphens and (laughs) commas and that sort of stuff but in such a oh interesting and an intriguing way um I think that it's really useful and I think the thing that sets what you've done apart from other books who cover similar things other books are either a how-to as in here's how to fix do the comma um or it is about the history of the comma but they never come to a conclusion and your book does both which is what I think is so valuable about it um was that um there's a balance between writing a how-to and also compared to what you've ended up with, which is you've incorporated those definitive elements, but also surrounded it by all of this one, these wonderful stories. Was that always the intention or? I think that (laughs) um, uh, it's it's such a great observation because um, I think, I mean, for me personally, the the best way to learn something um, is to uh, read about it in a way that's fun and engaging mm. because then you remember that we have much better chance of remembering the information. Um, and so I am not a prescriptive grammarian. Um, there are lots of people out there that really understand how grammar works and they've written fantastic books about it. Um, but I do think that, you know, so for example, let's take um, the hyphen, the end mm. rule, the yeah. M rule, uh, which is something that, um, many many writers uh don't use properly at um, all <laughs> <yeah. laughs> <Rusty> but, <bonkers. laughs> but once you understand um the what the, the difference between the three things is and why you know mm-hmm. the, the fun little story about you know them being known as mutton and nuts which is what printers used to refer to n rules and m rules mm-hmm. that that will hopefully stick in your mind and then the next time you're writing you think actually do i do i mean a hyphen here or do I mean an N rule um, mm. and make make you think about that a little bit? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that my natural disposition is that's how I want to learn things. Um, mm. Just by having uh, these things illustrated as you go through the book um, to you, rather than sort of, here's a list of how to use a comma. And, you know, yes. and, and also, um, 
you know, these things are a matter of uh, taste and style. You know, in a lot of cases, there is no right answer or wrong answer. Um, mm. And so, that, you know, like James Joyce, never really using any punctuation, never mm. using um, mark. It's like, well, you know, his, his books seem to have done all right without it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, there's, there's the exceptions to rules. And, and so I think, uh, you know, you have to be uh, pragmatic and flexible um, you know in how you talk about these things as well so now that the book is out what kind of response have you had to it what kind of you know feedback or reactions um, have people given you on it um well uh I guess like um like most authors uh people are very very nice about the book um which is fantastic I think I'm really fortunate Valerie because I've written a book uh about something that people generally feel very positive about um Mm. So most people, we have this like, you know, when you're talking about books, people's faces light up because they want to tell you about the books that are important to them or that they're writing a book or, you know, uh, like we have all these emotional connections with words, um, which means it's an absolute joy to write a book about books um, because people want to get involved in those conversations. Um, And I have so many people that, you know, want to tell me that they're writing something um, or how much they enjoy a particular author or you know and so I'm really really fortunate and that's like a lot of the reception um, has been about this very deep and enduring love that we have for the the physical book. Mm -mm. Now I have to ask you this question (laughs) you admit in the book that you have been involved in a situation (laughs) where 20,000 copies of the, I think it was, The Importance of Being Earnest, spelt E-R-N-E-S-T as opposed to E-A-R-N-E-S-T, on the cover were printed. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. I was just looking around then because I thought I might have a copy of it on my desk uh, because I like to keep it in front of me (laughs) as a kind of, let me just... No, I don't. I, anyway, um, yeah, so uh, that is what we managed to do, Valerie. Um, <laughs> so, so one of the things about writing this book is um, people want to know about when things go wrong, uh, which is human nature. I would be absolutely the same. Like there are no stories about everything going right because that's really boring. Um, and so I think sometimes uh, when mistakes happen in books, um people genuinely can't understand how it can happen. Um, And so part of what I, you know, I do a bit on typos um, is to try and uh, unpack the reasons why we end up in these situations. Um, And book covers in publishing, obviously, before they go to print, uh, they get circulated around many different people, many different departments, all who give their thoughts and feedback on on the words and what's going on. Um, I mean, the importance of being earnest one, it's kind of it is understandable how it happened. It's just you know using the wrong form of the word, so it looked like credible on the cover, um, but obviously it's completely wrong. Um, I think there's a a few years ago there was in fact a rough guide to Australia. I think where Australia was <laughs> wrongly on the spine. Oh my and god! Again, yeah, <laughs> and again, like, but when you think about it, it's like uh, when you're proofreading a cover. Um, we used to have like these um, colour printouts of the cover that would circulate. Uh, so, you know, based on the lessons I've learned, I would physically move the spine. Uh, so I'm reading the words 
horizontally because if you try right. and do it vertically, that's how you can easily miss something yes yes and it's partly because your eye just tells you like you know print has this kind of authority so when you're looking mm. at something printed and page proofs your eye naturally assumes that it's correct mm. and so part of being a good proofreader um, or working in publishing is really interrogating the words is not just kind of switching off and you know letting your eye assume that things are correct you've got to mm. really think about what's on the page in front of you um and and I do think like you know I, I mean I have to be careful here because um for an author obviously the last thing you want in your book are typos um but you're like for me I've had to find a way of dealing with the fact that they will happen to me because it's an mm. occupation hazard in my job um and if I couldn't deal with that then I couldn't get up in the morning and go to work um so you're sort of feelings about a typo do depend on your relationship to it and it's easy to like laugh at like you know the Oscar Wilde one uh, because mm. not around anymore and you know mm. that's what, and he probably would have found it quite funny um <laughs> but you know obviously for an author that would be catastrophic if you had a typo on the front cover um but in the past interestingly um so sort of when uh, uh mass market printing first emerged typos were a kind of backwards and forwards conversation between readers and authors you know mm. they were expected to occur um and there was nothing you know particularly sinister about them they were just you know uh you also couldn't really um have typos until you had standardized agreed spellings mm. um and until that happened uh, there'd be a lot more variation um mm. on, on how anything would appear on a page so so your relationship to typos does depend on where you stand, uh, you know, in the process of making them. I love how you discussed that there's a relationship to typos. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, you know, all typos are not equal. So, for example. No, app, that's true. Yeah. The worst place to have a typo, obviously, is the cover. The second worst place is in the prelim pages. Um, mm. If there's a typo on page 712 of a 800-page book, it's probably possibly not the end of the world. We can just correct it for reprints and on we go. Um, yes. So I, again, I do think, yeah, it, it does depend on where the typo is and what it is as well. <laughs> All right. I absolutely loved your book, as I mentioned. So let's finish up with what would be your top three tips to writers, who, who to authors who want to approach a project of this nature that is a non-fiction book about a particular subject, what are the three things that you think that they need to have front of mind? I think for all writers, and mm -hmm. fiction or non-fiction, um, there's this kind of uh, tyranny of the blank page. And I think the absolutely key thing as an author is to get something down mm. on the page. Once you have done that, then you've got an opportunity to go back and start to think about the structure of what you have written and begin the sort of editing and refining process. But until you have been bold enough to get something down, you can't do that. So you just get, like, I think I quote Maxwell Perkins in the book, who was F. Scott Fitzgerald's editor, and this, this idea of just getting it down on paper and then you can see what to do with it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that to me is uh, like so many, so many people say to me, oh, I've got an idea for a book. I want to write a book. And I'm like, fantastic. What, do you, you know, what have you done? And they haven't actually written anything down because I think there's this fear 
Um, mm. And I, I, understand, I understand that. I'm not criticising people for that. I think it is a, a big step to start writing, but you have to do it because then you can go back and start to shape it um, yes. and return to it. Um, so I think that's my kind of number one mm. uh, tip. Um, two, I think, especially for nonfiction, it really helps if you love your subject. I think readers can tell if you're kind of indifferent. <laughs> like so if I you're writing that, about postcodes or pylons. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be indifferent. <laughs> but, um, so <laughs> I really must rein myself in for my next round. Um, so, yeah, finding something that you are, you know, really passionately engaged in is absolutely key because your readers need um enthusiasm uh, yeah. from you. Um, they really, really do because uh, uh, you know you've got to lead them on the journey with you. And if it's something kind of you know really niche and es- esoteric, I mean that wouldn't bother me as long as you <laughs> were really you know really engaged and enthused by that process. Mm-hmm. Um, God, number three, I don't even uh, I'm not sure I haven't a number. How three about the writing three. process then? You know the actual you 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 the actual while you're in the throes of it sustaining it till you get to a final draft? Uh, I think actually one of the things you need to think carefully about is who to show your drafts to. Um, So I think all writers, well, maybe just me, uh, (laughs) you know, I love feedback that's positive. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I'm really lucky. So my partner is is a writer. And so I was able to be really enthusiastic about what I was writing and then show it to him. And he would always have lots of really good thoughts about how I could phrase things better or structure things in a better way. Um, So I was really lucky because it was like having my own in-house editor, effectively. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's actually a better writer than I am, frustratingly. Um, So (laughs) there's that. But, um, But yeah, so I think, but be careful about who you share your work with. Um, Like, because once it's out there other people's feedback can be helpful but only if it's if it's the right sort of feedback if you see what I mean um so I think the temptation to just show it to everybody uh has to be kind of reined mm. in a little bit like think about where you're going with it and how what why are you showing this particular draft to this particular person what's your sort of hope what's your expectation um mm. about how they can help you improve it Wonderful. All right. Well, congratulations on your book, How Words Get Good. I think it's going to become a classic. So thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Valerie. I've really enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rebecca Lee. Of course, I love nerding out on all things to do with writing and all the little stories that come with the world of writing. Did you know that... 
italics, the word italics, it's not italics in Italy. <laughs> italics, which of course if the, is the font that slopes to the right, yeah, were first used in an edition of Virgil published in Venice in 1501. And they were supposed to mimic handwriting and make it feel more personal. Inside Italy, the font is actually named after its creator, Aldus. So the font is called Aldino. But outside Italy, Italics was named after the country they came from. So Italics. There you go. There's your fun fact for the week that you can impress people at Pub Trivia. But for now, let me go to our giveaway this week. We have three copies of Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus to give away. So make sure that you join the competition for your chance to win one of three copies. Meet the unconventional, uncompromising chemist, Elizabeth Zott. She's not your average woman, but it's the early 1960s and her all-male team at Hastings Research Institute takes a very unscientific view of equality, except for one, Calvin Evans, the brilliant Nobel Prize-nominated grudge holder who falls in love with her mind. True chemistry results. But like science, life is unpredictable, which is why a few years later, Elizabeth Zott finds herself not only a single mother, but the reluctant star of America's most beloved cooking show, Supper at Six. Her unusual approach to cooking proves revolutionary because, it turns out, Elizabeth Zott isn't just teaching women to cook. She's daring them to change the status quo. All right, so three copies of Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Your chance to win will be at writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 20th of June. So that's writercentre.com.au slash win. We've now reached the end of this week's episode. I look forward to seeing you at our free event on the 16th of June at 7.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time, where we'll be answering all your questions on the world of writing children's books. Remember, I have a huge bonus for those of you who attend that you won't want to miss out on. So you can check it out at writercentre.com.au slash RSVP. And we're going to be having a fantastic event with Suzanne O'Sullivan and Pamela Freeman. In the meantime, feel free to connect with me on social media. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram over at ValerieKoo.com. But of course, I am always in the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. Uh, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So many fantastic aspiring, emerging and established writers from all walks of life. But for now, thanks so much for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.